There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've tuned to this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Today's guest is Tom Sterner, the founder and CEO of the Practicing Mind Institute. As a successful entrepreneur, Tom is an expert in present moment functioning, or PMF. He's a popular and in-demand speaker who works with industry groups and high-performance individuals, including athletes, to help them operate effectively in high-stress situations so they can achieve new levels of mastery. He's brought clarity to thousands so they can accomplish more with less effort, in less time, and with less stress. And that just sounds amazing. He's the author of the bestseller, The Practicing Mind, Developing Focus and Discipline in Your Life, and Fully Engaged, Using the Practicing Mind in Daily Life. Before founding the Practicing Mind Institute, he served as the chief concert piano technician for a major performing arts center, preparing instruments for the most demanding performances. During his 25-year tenure, he personally worked with such legendary performers as Van Kleinburn, Pavarotti, Andre Watts, Ray Charles, Tony Bennett, Fleetwood Mac, Bonnie Raitt, and Wynton Marsalis. I mean, that's just a who's who right there. Tom Sterner, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Hey, thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. So, Tom, I invite you to join us today because I'm eager to learn about present moment functioning and the Practicing Mind Institute, but you have to tell us first about your previous professional life. We just went through the, the, the who's who there, the Hall of Famers. What inspired you to become a concert piano technician, and what did you love most about that work? Uh, I was actually at the University of Delaware in a completely unrelated um, major. I was studying to be, uh, I was in turf and horticulture, and I was studying to be uh, like a greenskeeper, a green superintendent in golf. And I went into that because it was like my senior year in high school, and I had didn't have the faintest idea what I was going to do. And the uh, went to the guidance counselor, and he said, well, you know, what do you do during the summer? I said, oh, I usually work in people's yards. He said, okay, why don't you get a good degree in that? And I said, sounds good to me. And, you know, and so off I went. But I've been a musician my whole life, and my father was uh, brilliant um, from a mechanical standpoint. And my mother was highly disciplined um, and very detail-oriented. And those two things worked very good in the trade that um, when I went into the piano thing. So my, what my father notices noticed was that I really wasn't all that interested in my major. I completed the major. Um, and so he, on a whim, said, you know, why don't you become a piano technician? He said, like, you know, you love music, you love the piano, you're mechanically inclined, and um, seems like a good fit. And and that's when I really, you know, started into that. Uh, and it was a 30-year um, time and it's very difficult to explain to people the uh, the amount of work there is in a, just just in tuning a piano. The repetition is just out of this world. There's 88 of everything at least in a piano, and so you know there's maybe it, it varies a little bit from piano to piano, but it's about 235 strings, and you know in the instrument. And if you're going to tune that piano, you're going to have to touch 
the tuning pin for each one of those strings several times. And that's just in one tuning. And when you're doing, you know, seven, seven or eight tunings in a day, it's an incredible amount of redundant work. It's physically demanding. Uh, piano technicians struggle with a lot of joint problems because it's hard on your joints. Uh, so anyway, I got into that and um, I was at the right place at the right time. It was a very octogenaric trade. Everybody that was in it was my father's age or older. I would go to these conferences and I'd end up dancing with these guys' wives because none of them wanted to dance and there was no young guys there. And um, so I stuck out and uh, I ended up you know, doing very, very well in it. I took to the trade and I scored very high on their test. And I had all of my ratings that were available by the time I was 22 or 23. And then these guys began um, retiring and they just gave me their work. So my business became very, very big in a very short period of time without a whole lot of effort on my part. Uh, but I also had skills that um, many of the people in the area did not have. So I became into really highly in demand and that um, some of the concert guys that were doing that work, they, they basically vouched for me. They would just say, look, this is, this is, I'm retiring and this is who you need. So I, I got into that there. And as you said earlier, you know, over the next uh, about 25 years was when I was highly um, involved in that. I worked in like a four state area and, I did meet all these people. I sat in their trailers with them. I'd be working on keyboards in their trailers while they were talking about what they were going to do in the show. I'd be in the green room with them or sometimes in their dressing room. They'd invite me in and we'd just sit around and hang out. Um, I got a lot of respect from, from the performers because they respected my trade um, as much as I respected theirs. And they really... They really appreciated uh, a high-level technician that could do their job. And I I actually was fortunate enough that I had some performers over those years would in the middle of the show would stop and tell the audience, you're very fortunate to have Tom as your technician because we travel all over the world and finding good technicians is a difficult thing. So um it was a, you know, it was a it was demanding. And really the reason I got out of it was because uh at the time it was not scalable, you know, meaning that when I first got into it, I thought, well, hey, you know, the problem here is I don't have enough clients to stay busy all the time. And let's just say that number's a thousand people. Um, and I thought, well, if I could just get a thousand people in my books, then I would be working in full capacity all the time. Well, it never, not coming from a business family, um, uh, it never occurred to me, well, what happens when you have 2000 people? Like, um, and that's what happened. I just kept, attracting more business, but I couldn't get to the money because I was the business. I couldn't hire people to do the work and everybody wanted me to come out. And so it just got to a point where I was working 65, 70 hours a week and uh, running through four states. And uh, I just said, I, this isn't how I want to spend the rest of my life. So that was, was the impetus really to begin looking at something else. And that's where the practicing mind came came in because I had been studying. I had studied from the time I was a teenager. I'd studied a lot of Eastern thought. Um, I had got into sports psychology and then later neuroscience uh, and, and then consciousness uh, studies, you know, science of consciousness, you know, now and hypnosis and heart math and all these, you know, all these things. And I was really fascinated. I was always kind of a solitudinal kid. I wasn't a hermit, but I did enjoy being by myself and thinking. And that was 
uh, the, the a piano technician spends, especially a concert piano technician, spends the whole day by themselves. They're let in a room with a big piano. And when I would come into the theater, they might be setting stuff up, but everybody would just leave. And the stage would be mine. And there'd be like a single spotlight on me so I could see in the piano. And I would just work by myself until I was finished. So you spend a lot of time by yourself. You're working at a job that's highly repetitious. And I had to learn a way to finish the person at the end of the day was paying me just as much as the person that was getting me first thing in the morning. And so I had to figure out a way of keeping my mind fresh, not getting bored and keeping my motivation and my mental and emotional stamina up. And that was the reason why I was so attracted to all the things that eventually became the first book. So we'll get to your new business and your books in a minute, but a couple of things here. So you talked about sitting at the piano with just a spotlight on you. Did you ever just sit there like you're in concert and just break out into song and just start playing? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I would go in. Um, I have my own keys to um, the concert hall and I would, I would go in at, um, I might sometimes I'd have to go into four 35 in the morning because they would not realize they needed a piano prepared for, um, for that day. Um, and the only way I could fit it in my schedule, my remanufacturing work was booked for three to four years. And um, my, door-to-door service was booked several months and I wouldn't go past that because then you had trouble with people forgetting and not being there. Um, so there were times where I would have to go into the theater very early in the morning and I might go in at four thirty-five o'clock and I would just flip a spotlight on and sit there and play for two hours. Um, you know, before I would, uh, because I did play professionally, you know, when I was younger, I played up until I was maybe 40. I played professionally too, uh, as a side hustle. So yes, I loved, um, I was a very big com- into composing and orchestrating. And so I loved to sit down on the piano and play. And it was, of course, I was playing really, really nice pianos. So um, yes, it was, that was part of the perks of the job. And another question I have for you, you mentioned a few moments ago of dancing with your colleagues' wives at conferences. There were concert piano technician conferences. Oh, yes. You know, the uh, the Piano Technicians Guild is, you know, an an international, it's a global organization that uh, teaches and tests piano technicians. um, Because, you know, the problem with piano technicians is that there is no, there's no way to really, you can have people that um, come out to your house that know absolutely nothing and are self-taught. And you can have people that come out that are highly, highly trained. And they're both in the, you know, they're both online, you know, so the guild, uh, you know, was formed in, in, I think, 1957. And they um, originally, when I was first tested, I was tested by a grill master. I, I didn't realize what he was going to do was hand me all of his business, which was why he was, um, you know, grilling me. But um, he was very difficult. But you also had situations where, you know, dads were training their sons. And yeah, it's good. He knows how to, he knows how to do it. I, you know, like, I mean, it, it was not a good situation. So they eventually... Uh, probably in the 80s, I think, um, they came up with a computer scored test, which was very, very accurate. And they f- initially, they found that a lot of guys that had be- what was the- used to be their highest rating, which was the craftsman rating, could not pass uh, with a very high level of tuning. But no one had ever actually heard them tune, and they had never really been scored by an objective observer. So there, people were upset about that. Uh, so anyway, that you know, yes, the guild is um, is like is like that, and they have uh, conferences all over the world. And I used to go all around the country and uh, spend a week here or there, like studying with all different people 
on all different aspects of piano maintenance, piano remanufacturing, concert work, you know, whatever. In the start of the show, I went through the who's who of famous musicians you've worked with. Do you have a favorite or two among them or a favorite story or two to share? Um, well, there were, you know, there were many that were, I would say, were, uh, for the most part, they're just regular people. And they, um, you know, there was only one or two that to me had a poor attitude and it wasn't something that was aimed at me. It was usually aimed at the people in their entourage, you know, but they were just very unprofessional. But in general, uh, they were just um, they would like to sit down and talk with you. They were like, you might run across the street and get them Chinese food or something, you know, like, uh, you know, when they were sitting there, cause they, they would smell the Chinese food, you know, like, and like, Oh man, I would love some. I'd say, I'll go get you some. What do you want? You know, like, um, so I, I had a really good rapport, but I would say the one person that would be my favorite, which is a bit of a story, um, would not be the person you would think. There was a man that I'm not going to name him, but he was a very highly regarded classical pianist. And he came in uh, one time and he, uh, at the time I didn't realize it, but he had a problem with alcoholism. And so he was prone to mood swings and he came in and he was infuriated by the concert piano. Um, Didn't like it, uh, didn't like anything about it. And I got there and the stage manager said, this guy's really upset with the piano. And I said, okay, like, um, you know, that's my job. So he said, well, I'm going to go up there with you. And I said, you don't need to do that. He goes, yeah, I, I need to do that. Well, when I got up there, this guy just laid into me and, you know, was, um, I, you really couldn't talk to him. You know, he was so emotional. And, uh, and the, when he left, the, the stage manager said, I wanted you to have a witness in case something here comes back to you, you know, so well, it did. He went back and said that guy should be fired. Well, I hadn't even worked on the piano yet, you know. Uh, and so the the manager of the theater said, wait a minute, you know, we've had Tom for years and we've never had a problem. Something's not right here. And then he called in the stage manager. So that got taken care of. I did fix the piano. The guy played. And then about two years later, he came back. And what they were, the practice that they had was to store the piano, the concert grand underneath of the stage, because it took up a lot of room. And they had all kinds of shows there. They had ballets. Um, sometimes they had movie night. They had a lot of things in the theater. And the, um, so they would, to get the piano out of the way, they would, and so that it also wasn't damaged, they would store it under the stage. But the problem with that was, you know, a piano was wood and felt and uh, it, it it has a lot of expansion coefficients in it that are affected by humidity swings and all that and temperature changes. And so the piano would get really out of whack when it was underneath the stage. It would sound terrible. The touch would be very uneven. And so what they would do was they would, when they were going to have a really specific high-level pianist, they would bring it up onto stage several days ahead of time to let it acclimate again. And then I would come in and spend maybe six or seven hours on it before the performer would actually sit and touch it. So that was the plan. Um, I was supposed to come in at around 11 o'clock on Saturday morning. This guy was supposed to come in at around five and play the piano. And then I was supposed to stay and then, you know, tweak anything that, you know, he was concerned about. Well, he got into town Friday night and went it walked over to the theater and they had a young new stage hand there who let him in, which was a good idea. And the guy sat down at the piano. The piano was cacophonious. It was horrible. And he just he had remembered the piano from before. And so um, he was just infuriated. And 
and he's yelling at the kid and and telling him your technician's a jerk and stupid and all these sort of things. And so not knowing what else to do, the kid called me at home and he said, you know, what should I do? I said, well, I'll, I'll come in now. Tell him that I'll, I'll come in now. So here's a really important lesson for the listeners. You know, when I left my house, my first impulse was to be infuriated with this kid because he was not supposed to let this guy on the piano because I thought this kid has dropped me down a rabbit hole that is really going to be difficult to climb out of. This guy hates the piano. He hates me. And I'm going to have to turn that around. Now, that was a very brief thought that I had, but this goes back to what I wrote about in the practicing mind and present moment functioning. And I, um, and my latest book, it's just a thought. I immediately was aware that I was having this thought system. You know, I, I tell people, look, you're not your thoughts. You're the one who has thoughts. Some thoughts you do create, but most of the thoughts happen to you. And this thought was happening to me. And so I thought this is not taking me where I need to go right now. So I thought to myself, on the way into the concert hall, if I could experience this situation any way I want it, what would that be? I need to know that before I walk on the stage and this guy comes out. I need to know that um, because I can't I won't be able to find it in the middle of the emotional content that's bound to happen. And so I thought to myself, well, I can't control him. I can only control how I process him. I can't control how he processes what I say to him. And I can't control how he he reacts to how I process him. So I thought the one thing I can control is myself. So what am I going to focus on? I'm going to focus on my inner peace. I'm not going to let him touch my inner peace. So I know he's going to go off on the rails. He's going to get crazy. That I know. So I'm just going to watch my inner peace when he's doing that. And that's what I'm going to pay attention to. And that's what I'm basically going to stay adjusting. So I get to the place. I walk in and I start stripping the piano out on mutes and getting ready to tune it first is just so I could see what I have. And here he comes. He, he, somebody told him I was there and he comes and he's breathing fire. And so I thought the best, the best thing here is to strike first um, because he's really angry. So I introduced myself to him and I said, the first thing I have to say is uh, I have to apologize that somebody of your accomplishment had to put up with this piano. I said, you were not supposed to see this piano or hear this piano or touch this piano until I spent six hours on it. I explained to him how the piano was stored. I said, and let me say this. I understand why you're upset. I said, this is a solo performance. It's not with an orchestra. I said, it's just you and the piano. And I said, it doesn't matter how many hours you've practiced, what your level of proficiency is, you need the piano to be transparent. It needs to get out of the way so that you can express whatever repertoire you're playing fluently and as effortlessly as possible. And if you can't do that, the audience isn't going to know it's the piano. They're going to think it's you. And they're going to think you can't play. You're going to get bad reviews. I said, and you're out there by yourself and nobody knows. And while I'm, while I'm saying this, Chris, this guy, his body language is changing. Everything is changing. Like, um, and, and then he interrupts me and he says, what did you say your name was? <laughs> I said, it's Tom. And he, he said, Tom, no one has ever gotten it like this. He goes, I can't believe this. He goes, I'm totally comfortable with you after this conversation. I said, well, um, I said, why don't you get down to the, um, your dressing room, hang out? 
I said, unless you want to go back to the hotel. I said, because this is going to take me a couple hours. He goes, I'll be downstairs. He said, I'll take a nap or whatever. I can hang out. I went down after I worked on the piano and I said, you know, I'm done. I'd like you to come up first pass. And he said, I don't need to. I said, you don't need to. He goes, nope, I don't need to. He said, I know enough about you to know that I trust you. He said, I'll be fine. Um, and so he played this performance, which was great reviews and everything was great. Now, the story doesn't end there, but I thought to myself, now, there was a split second where I was at a fork in the road and I had to make a decision as to how do I want to process this situation? What can I control? What can I control? And I was aware, thought awareness and I was aware of my thoughts. And so um, because of that, if I had gone in there and gotten, you know, just gotten in this guy's face and all that, you know, it would have ruined my day. It would have ruined his day. It would, he would have put in a terrible performance. The people would have gotten, wouldn't have gotten their money's worth. All these things would have happened that didn't happen because of this very split second decision that I made that couldn't have happened if I wasn't aware it was an option. Now, he left there and another two years later, he came to another concert hall and, um, they called me to come do their piano when he was there. And, you know, when I walked into that theater, he was up on the stage playing and he was sitting there playing, had his head down, was playing. And I walked down between, you know, in the aisle and got to the, where the stage was. And he turned and he saw me and he said, Oh, I am so glad it's you. Like um, he <laughs> said, Tom, um, I'm so glad to see you. And I'm so grateful that you're the guy who's going to work on this. And I said, well, how is it? He said, it's okay. He said, you'll work your magic. I'll be fine. And then he said, you know, you come into the show. And I said, well, I said, I didn't even know you were in town. I said, I would have loved to. I said, but I don't have a ticket. He said, I'll have a ticket for you at the office. He goes, front row. He said, please come on, on me. Like, uh, so we had this, this here's, it was a relationship that started out, you know, several, you know, maybe six years before that, where the guy was just screaming at me. And now we're, we're friendly with each other and we have mutual respect. Um, so it goes, it, like I said, that was, you know, you asked me who my favorite person was. Well, there was a lot of people I sat down with and I had very lovely conversations with, but I learned a lot from that guy and from the opportunity that uh, that whole scenario presented to me. That is an incredible story. Uh, and it's actually a perfect segue now into what we really want to talk about. You know, I'm so interested in present moment functioning. Did you develop PMF or did it exist before? What's its history? I. Present moment functioning has been around for thousands of years in the East. I mean, they have understood, you know, Zen mind, um, you know, they, they understand that um, there is only the now. But the the difficulty that we have now, we have now it began to be studied in sports probably in the uh 1980s, you know, because people don't realize that, you know, sports psychology hadn't coalesced um into what it is now. I mean, now it's a very big thing. Nobody's competitive without it. Uh, but but um, what we know now, it's irrefutable, is that when you are functioning in the present moment, when you are completely absorbed in what is in front of you, where your feet are, what you're doing right now and nothing else, you are working at your highest level, your highest potential. You're going to accomplish whatever the task is in the least amount of time and the, with the least amount of effort. And you will not experience the sense of resistance to this moment because that's what impatience is. It's a resistance to this moment because you're, you know, when you're resisting this, the present moment, what it is, is you're thinking about 
something you're going to do later, like um, something you're not doing right now. And, um, and, you know, you can only do what you're doing right now. You can think about other things, but you physically can only work on what you're doing right now. So what I had noticed about myself in high school was that I was very undisciplined and I was, I would get involved and I, I had all these things I wanted to do. I was very creative. I had a very creative mind and that's the downside of a creative mind because it's always looking at potential. Everything is a potential. You know, I could learn to play the piano. I could be a gymnast. You know, I can do, it's always looking and it's interpreting that is like, not, I, I don't know if I would say shiny objects, but it's like stuff. I want it all. I want to do all these things, you know? And what would happen is that I would start on the path uh, like piano. I wanted to play piano. I wanted to be a jazz piano player. And, and I'd have all this enthusiasm uh, and I'd say, I'm going to do this. And then what would happen is I would burn up that initial enthusiasm and stamina. Uh, and then I would fall into where, where everybody falls in. Um, I wanted everything that practice was going to give me. I just didn't want to practice. And, um, and so it really, because I'm a problem solver by nature, it became apparent to me that, look, you're never going to reach your potential if you don't finish what you start. And to do that, you're going to have to find a way of interpreting the experience differently. Because this experience is just, it, for some reason, it, 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 um, it, it just was apparent to me that the experience is neither boring or exciting. It's just the experience. And you can interpret it however you want. And you're interpreting it in the wrong way. And that's why you don't feel like doing it. But if you just let go of everything and 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 this one, and just you're going to spend just this one moment doing this, um, that feeling of uh, when am I going to be done? I got to like when you put. I always tell people, look, when you attach yourself mentally and emotionally to a point in the future, when I when you have your goal, you immediately put yourself at war with the process of achieving it. And you spend pretty much 98% of your life in the process and the experience of achieving all of your goals. So it makes a lot of sense to learn to find the joy that is present in that because that's where the real joy, you know, when you run a race, why does the race feel so satisfying when you cross this, the finish line? It's because of everything you just did, like um, all the struggle, all the training. That's where the value, that's what creates the value. If I just take a piece of chalk and draw it on the street and say, there's a finish line, go ahead and step over it. It means nothing. Like, And so when we can get that through our head and realize that, look, when you feel like you're struggling with something, all that's telling you is there's a feeling there's a feeling. We, we call that feeling struggling it's you know but that's just a label that we try to take what we're feeling and put it into a linguistic form but it's just data that's all it is is data it's information and what is that information really telling you it's telling you that you're up against your threshold you know you don't think about things you're good at the things you're good at flow past you easily they don't take any effort the things that when you're up against your threshold you feel that you feel that I can't do this. I can sort of do it. Sometimes I can do it. Sometimes I can't do it. It's it's quote difficult. Um, and so, but all that feeling of difficult is telling you is, Hey, you're right up against your threshold. And isn't that where you want to be? I mean, because otherwise you're not going anywhere. So to me, when you reinterpret that feeling of it's just data, it's just telling me that. So an example that I give of that, I think, which is as a musician, which is pretty easy to understand is, 
when you go to take a p- piano lessons and you never played piano, you never played anything, and you go and on the very first day, you have the 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 instructor says, okay, here's what the notes look like on the manuscript paper. And this is a C and this is a D and this is where it is on the keyboard. If you're playing piano, this is where it is on your instrument here. You, and you press it with this finger and, you know, this is a quarter note. This is an eighth note, you know, and the, you're up against your threshold. Uh, you, you can't do it. You don't understand it. You're you, that's where you're at, that you can't go past that because you have to master that first. Now, if you, so what does that feel like inside? It feels like there, it's a feeling that we call difficult, you know, like, um, so what is, what happens five years down the road when you've been practicing and practicing and now you're playing either you pop music that you like, you know, intermediate music or an intermediate classical piece. What does that feel like then? It feels the same. <laughs> it feels the same because you're always working on music that is at your threshold. As soon as you master one piece, you don't want to go, you don't go back and play the silly crunchy flake song or whatever it was that you started out with. Like you don't want to play that stuff anymore because it's like I remember my daughter one time when she was in sixth or seventh grade. We were in the car and she played this music. She said, Dad, you got to hear this music. And she played it for me. And I said, That's nice. And she said, yeah, I know that's nice. She said, but you don't really, it doesn't really do anything for you, does it? I said, no, it doesn't. And she said, why? And I said, well, let me ask you something. I said, do you remember the books you were reading in first grade? Like, you know, the, the cat and the hat sat and all that kind of stuff. I said, yeah. I said, why don't you read them? And she goes, because they're dumb. I said, exactly. I said, like, I'm way past that music. I'm sorry. Like I said, you know, that music is so infantile. I said, like, from, you know, I passed that a long time ago. I'm not telling you not to listen to it. I'm just telling you, for me, it's like sitting there and reading, you know, the cat in the hat. I just can't do it. Like, um, and so it's the same thing. You know, we're always up against our threshold and it's where we want to be. But again, if we, if we interpret that as, this is hard. This is difficult. Well, everything you can't do ha- creates that f- data, that feeling of data. And you, it's your, you really could look at that and go, oh, I love this. This is exactly where I want to be, you know, because I'm pushing my abilities farther than they were before. And that's where I want to be. You know, I don't want to just be doing the stuff I did before. I want, I want to be getting better. I want to be getting better. And that's, you know, it really comes down. I, I really harp on the mantra, interpretation creates your experience. And your experience will impact your performance. So pay attention to that. Stop interpreting something that is difficult as being bad. Um, you know, like uh, because that's your interpretation. I can say tomorrow you got to get up and speak in front of a thousand people. Some people would say, I can't wait. I got so much to say. Somebody else says that's my worst nightmare. I don't want to do that. Like, um, but speaking in front of the people is not, it's just speaking in front of the people. It's just an opportunity to speak in front of the people. And I, I should say that this stuff, Chris, goes into everything in life. You know, I have been through a lot of things. I've had money. I've been broke. I've been divorced. I have lost numerous people in my family, some of them very young to cancer. I've, you know, took care of my father, uh, you know, hand to hand in the last you know, several uh, months of his life. You know, I've been through a lot of different situations that many people go through. And I can tell you that understanding this stuff is a total game changer. It, you do have an opportunity to change your interpretation of even the most serious, what we would call the most serious situations. And when you have the thought awareness and you can do that and you have the mechanics um, and you understand them, 
then what happens is, is you can be the person you want to be for those people in those moments. So you just mentioned PMF being a, a game changer. Is that something we can quickly master or does it take time? Well, it's, it's, there are levels of it, like, um, just like playing the piano, you know, uh, that's like saying, you know, can I learn to play the piano quickly? You know, well, how good do you want to play? <laughs> you know, um, there, I, the first thing you have to learn, it's a skill. It's a skill. Everything in life is a skill, Chris. I don't care whether it's learning to button your shirt, you know, learning to get the spoon from the bowl to into your mouth when you're two years old. I mean, it's everything is a skill. And as soon as we master the skill, we stop thinking about it and we move on to more difficult skills to master. And we are so, if you go back 150 years ago where you lived in the, on a ranch and you had to go into town, it was 10 miles away and you were flipping and clopping on your horse by yourself. There wasn't a lot of things to distract you. There was, you were just out in nature and you're walking, your mind was pretty slow. There wasn't a lot of stimulus, but we're in a whole different situation now. You know, our, our clock has sped up. I mean, if you, even if you go back, like say a hundred years ago, you know, you got on a, a ship to go over to England, you know, you'd be like, you know, it's like two and a half weeks, man, we are really moving. Can you imagine that? Two and a half weeks, we're going to be in England. You know, now you get on a plane and it's like, oh gosh, it's six hours to get to London. I can't, I just can't believe it. Like, uh, what am I going to do? Like, I mean, our concept of time is very, very distorted. And no matter how fast we go, we want to go faster. And no matter how much we stick in our day, we want to stick more in our day. And, and so because of that, we look at, the process of learning a skill is something we have to endure um, so that we just want to have the skill. You know, <laughs> we, we just want to have the skill and be able to use the skill. But again, what makes the skill so rewarding is to overcome the lack of skill. So, um, so like I said, you know, you, but the first thing you have to do is you have to understand, well, what are the mechanics? Like, you know, I, because I can't, I need to know what to practice. You know, it's like, I, I, you know, when I, I don't play very much golf anymore, but I was very serious about it at one time and I had a lot of lessons and I go to, I still go to the driving range and I'm amused at when I watch people because they have the most horrible fundamentals that they are um, working very hard to install into their subconscious, you know, like, um, but they don't know it, you know, but they are practicing, they're repeating things that are not going to serve them on the golf course over and over and over again. And then they're expecting something to be different when they get on the golf course. And basically their subconscious mind is giving them exactly what they told it to give them. Like, uh, so to me, understanding how do I get, how do I get out of this loop? You know, how do I learn to become practicing um, or to be, you know, to, to become part of the practicing mind um, and to use those mechanics? How do I know what to repeat and, uh, and learning to relax and stop feeling so attached to a goal is an important part of that. Well, that point a moment ago, you just mentioned about today's world going faster, you know, trying to stick more in a day. How can present moment functioning help us with stress and anxiety management? Well, ironically, if you're in the present, you won't feel the stress. That You know, the stress comes from this feeling of I'm not where I need to be. You know, we all have a feeling of, incompleteness. And we interpret that feeling of being, it's because I don't, I'm not where I need to be. I need to be over there. I need to have this. I need to have that. And all of that is reinforced constantly with marketing. Uh, and so when we begin to learn, 
when we give ourselves permission to just experience this moment, that's when we we realize the value of it. And here's you know here's another short story from my piano technician days, which again I wrote about in, in it's the one I get asked the most about in um, uh, regarding the practicing mind. I was overloaded, as I said earlier. I was working. Um, sometimes I would get up at five o'clock in the morning. I'd get my kids up. I, you know, uh, I might have to go into the concert hall, then get back to the house and get them up, get their breakfast, you know, get get them to school, etc. Um, and then I work, and then I come home, have dinner with them, maybe help them with their homework. And then sometimes I would go back over to my shop and work until midnight, one in the morning, and come home, fall in bed, and then it would all start again. It was exhausting, and I don't. Even, I took, to be quite honest, I don't know how I did it. Like I couldn't do it now, but you know, I. I remember one day I had to tune two pianos in the concert hall. Uh, one was for the soloist, and then there was one actually in the orchestra score. And now I had been tuning those pianos for decades, and I knew exactly how long it took. I knew what was involved in it. Um, and I would, in these processes, I would tune them maybe 10 times in a week. Uh, and this day, my whole schedule was catching up with me. I was exhausted. Uh, I just wanted like to exhale. I wanted some, you know, a day off and I just couldn't have it. Like there was just, I had too much work. So I made this decision. I don't know what made me make this decision, but I said, you know what? I can't have a day off, but I'm tired of running. I feel like I'm running all the time and I'm always in a hurry and trying to do too much. So this, this particular call, I'm by myself. I'm going to be in the concert hall by myself. I am going to go methodically slow, very intentionally slow with everything that I do. And I took all of my my phone, anything that my watch, anything that had a clock on it, I took out and I left it in the van. And I I was very intentional and mindful as I walked to the theater, you know, like uh, and and then even when I got in the theater, I had my own keys. I, I got in the theater I, as I walked up the steps. Each step was very intentional, very mindful. I thought I'm going to be so ridiculous with this, but I just have to do this. I just owe it to myself. I'm going to give myself permission to do this. And if people get mad at me because I'm late, I, I can't help it. Like, so then when I got in there, you know, I was used to running up the steps, opening my toolbox, grabbing fistfuls of tools, putting them in the piano and stripping the thing out with the mutes and all this sort of stuff. This time I took one tool at a time. There's no reason to do that, but except to be slow. And I took, um, I took the uh, one tool at a time and I was extremely methodical and I went through this tuning very, very slowly. And then I went, normally I would grab all the tools and go over to the other piano with fistfuls of tools and drop in there. But instead I packed every tool up one by one in the toolbox, walked over there, did the same thing. Now I'm thinking while I'm doing it, when I first started to do this, my ego was screaming at me in panic. It's like, you know, you are creating such a mess for you for the rest of the day. And um, I just said, I don't care. I'm just doing this. And a, a strange thing happened. I, you know, my shoulders started to drop. I started to feel relaxed. I started to feel kind of blissful, you know, like just kind of happy and comfortable. Uh, I hadn't had that feeling in a long time. I didn't feel so keyed up and, you know, grit my teeth and all that. Um, and then when I walked out, I told myself, stay with it until you get back in the van. And I walked very slowly out of the van. When I looked at my clocks, I had gained a half an hour. I could not believe it. I just absolutely, this can't be true. But all the clocks agreed. And what I realized with that was by being in the present moment, 
all of my focus was only on what I was doing right then. It was my mind and my cognitive abilities were all accessible. Uh, they weren't scattered and pulled in all these different tags with switch tasking, you know, like uh, thinking about this and thinking about that. And so my actions, even in the tuning process, was very accurate. Instead of, you know, moving the, the wrench, you know, 10 times to find the right place, it was one, two, and it was there. I wasn't even aware of that. Like um, at the time, it was only in retrospect. So I followed that for the rest of the day. And I ended up being able to stop at a restaurant and eat instead of buying a sandwich at a convenience store and, and spill it on me on the van while I'm driving. I mean, all these, it was such a pleasure. And I've always, I always teach that to people. Look, you know, learn to be in this moment. I said, one way you can do it, like I said, is to trick yourself. Like if you're right-handed, brush your teeth in the morning with your left hand. I said, you'll find that, you know, like you can't, you don't have the coordination for it. I said, and so your mind has to put all of its attention on that. Like it, it can't be when you're doing it with your right, you're doing this, but you're thinking about all the stuff you're going to do today because that has become so habitual. It's a skill that the subconscious is installed and it doesn't need you to be there. Like, um, but if you go with something like using your left hand, it forces you to be in this moment while you're doing that. So in terms of, you know, to get back to your original thing is it, it gives you the, the byproduct of it is it gives you freedom from stress. It gives you, um, because, you know, if you didn't think, could you feel stress? No, <laughs> because stress is in thinking. Like you have to have thoughts in order to feel stress. You have the thoughts and then the hormones are released and, you know, then you experience, you know, the, the um, all of the content of the hormones, which is what, you know, feels, makes, is creates the emotion. So my point is, is that, when you have less and less thoughts, when you thin out and you become in control of the thoughts that you're having, or at least most of them, that stuff goes away. Um, and it's just, you know, it's been, it's always been here. It's like electricity. It's always been here. It's just that we haven't used it. Like, and we didn't even know we could use it. We didn't even know it was available. But now you look at, you go back 500 years ago, they didn't know about electricity. And if you told them about it, they would have said, what? It's invisible. You can't show it to me. You, I can't touch it. Like, no, it doesn't exist. Like, um, now we know there's so much we know now about how the mind works. And, uh, and we know you, you're really seeing it in sports because they exhausted the physical. They, exa they knew what nutrition does. They knew what fit the physicality does. But they peaked in that and they said, yeah, but we still can't get somebody to perform at the highest level, even though physically they're there and nutritionally they're there. We can't get them to focus uh, to, to um, function at their highest level in any kind of consistency. Why is that? Because all performance starts in the mind. And that was why they put so much money and effort into it. Freedom from stress. That's a novel idea. I love that. Yeah. And it is, um, it is possible. I mean, I can say. Um, an example I've given, I had a CEO one time who said, we were having this conversation and he said, well, I don't, I don't think I agree with that. He said, you know, I don't think that there are thoughts that happen that I'm not, that I don't actually create and that I'm in control of. He said, I think I'm in control of my thinking and, and to, to, um, to knock him off guard, you know, I said, did I tell you to talk? You need to sit there and just shut your mouth until I tell you to talk. And as soon as I did that, he reacted the way you would expect. And I said, you see that? I said, did you make a decision to feel the way you feel right now? And it was just this total epiphany for this guy. You know, he said, thank you for the awakening. He said, you're right. He said, I just reacted 
He said, I didn't make a decision about anything. It just happened to me. I said, that's right. I said, it just happened to you. I said, and that's where you live all day long. 95% of the time, neuroscience says 95% of the day, we are being thought instead of us thinking. We just do it all the time. So it feels normal. And we think that we are thinking, but actually we're just living um, programming that we and other people have installed into our subconscious throughout our life. Let's switch gears to your books. In your book, Fully Engaged, Using the Practicing Mind in Daily Life, you write about thought awareness training and setting goals with accurate data. And you've talked about data a few times. What is thought awareness training and how is it different from present moment functioning? Well, thought you can't become present moment in your functioning if you're not aware of what your mind is doing without your permission. I mean, I, you know, one time with a bunch of high schoolers I was doing a, a class with, I told them, I'm going to put a timer on. I want you to close your eyes and stop thinking for two minutes, just two minutes. And of course, I knew they couldn't do it, um, but they didn't know that they couldn't do it. I mean, they were so used to having a mind that was full of chatter and running all over the place and hyperactive that um, it, they thought that was them. Um, and so when they stopped and they started trying to will their mind to stop, it wouldn't obey them. And um, so when the two minutes came up and they came out of it, they were all, it was like this, this, um, this big epiphany. I mean, they're all talking to each other. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. You know? And I said, you know, what did you just learn? I, um, and they looked at me. I said, what I said, what you learned is that if you're telling your mind, you, the real you is telling your mind, stop thinking. And it says, no, I'm going to do it anyway. I said, who's in control? Cause it's not you. And um, I said, and that was such an awakening for these, these young people. Uh, and, they wanted more because they had had just enough of a taste of a mind that wasn't as active, even if they couldn't get their mind way down, um, that it felt, it just felt so restful. And, um, and they weren't experiencing um, the hyperness and, and the tension and all that sort of stuff. And so many of them went on to uh, meditation practice practices. So like I said, the very first thing you have to do, you cannot change what your mind is thinking. You can't change the automatic responses that you're getting if you're not aware that they're happening. And if you're in them, if you're in the reactions, like the CEO that I just mentioned, if you're in the, in the emotional content of the thought that is being fired off by your subconscious, uh, you don't have the privilege of choice. You're just going along for the ride. So you have to get outside of that loop. And that's what thought awareness training is. And it's really, really very simple. Um, you know, there's all kinds of forms of meditation. I've done many kinds of meditation. Uh, and people will ask, was it like, you know, a guided meditation? And my answer is no. You know, the problem, guided meditations have much to offer, but not for this. Because guided meditations ask you to think. You know, focus on your feet, you know, calm your mind, you know, if you feel your your legs relax. I mean, you know, I, I don't want that. I want you to stop thinking and watch, notice what your mind is doing without your permission. So generally, I have people, you know, sit upright in a chair, like a high back chair, like a dining room chair or something like that, with their feet flat on the floor, close their eyes with their their spine erect. Really, what we're aiming for is no distractions from physical discomfort. And, and also, 
uh, you don't want your head falling down because it promotes drow- drowsiness. So you want your head, you know, to be level. You close your eyes and try to look up a little bit with your eyeballs. Um, uh, not so much that it tires your eyes out, but just a little bit rather because you'll find that your eyes will want to dro- drop down. Um, and again, it's it can create drowsiness. And then you have one of two systems. You can either tell your mind that I want you to to notice my body breathing. That's all I want you to focus on. And the reason we give our, our mind one task is so that we have a point of relativity as to whether it's doing the task. Um, and we want a very simple point of relativity. So either just watch your body breathe, or you can say a simple phrase or hear it. You don't actually say it, but you just hear it in your head. And that can be anything positive. Um, you know, I'm still, I'm quiet, you know, I'm at peace. What I don't want a long sentence. I just want something that is very simple and uh, and positive in nature. And I tell people, look, this is what's going to happen. I said, usually initially you start trying to control your breathing because you never paid attention to it before. And now your ego is involved and it starts to think like, well, maybe I should breathe deeper. Maybe I should breathe slower. If you just let go of all that and let your body take over, it's been doing it your whole life anyway. It knows how to do it. But what will happen very quickly is the mind, which is a problem-solving machine, will say, this is really, you know, this is really boring. I know how to do this. So while you do this, I'm going to go work on what we're doing this afternoon, or I'm going to think about what I should have said to that person yesterday or whatever it is, like, um, and it takes off. And you go with it because you've always gone with it. And then there is this microsecond where you wake up. And when you wake up in that microsecond, you realize that I'm no longer, my mind has taken over. I'm with my mind and I'm doing this stuff. I'm no longer in charge. I'm no longer the noticer. I'm not the observer. I'm in the drama of whatever the mind is doing. And that people get discouraged in that because they think like I failed. But that is the mind, and that is your relationship to it. And it's perfectly normal, and that's where all the magic happens. Because in that, in that moment where that happens, what is happening is you have dropped back into the observer and out of the mind. Because you have to be the observer to notice that you're no longer – your mind isn't doing what you told it to. So – so there's two things that happen there. One is your self-awareness grows um, and your willpower grows because you have to pull your mind back on task. And that is the skill. The skill is that interplay between those two, noticing when the mind takes off, pulling and having the willpower to pull it back. And so when people say to me, like, I'm not very good at this because all I do is chase my mind. Yeah, well, so join the club. Like, that's what everybody does. Like, um, you know, including, you know, monks in Tibet. Like, um, it's normal. Some days your mind will be relatively plastic. It depends on what's going on in your life. Other times it will be very difficult to, to pull the mind, you know, to pull your, your consciousness onto what's your mind, to, to be the observer, because you might feel, be feeling stress. And stress is just an emo- It's just a thought. So all it is is a thought, and that thought is caught because you're in the thought. You're not the thought. You know, when you're feeling nervous, you're not nervous. It's a you're experiencing a nervous thought. You are outside of that. That's a very it's a very difficult concept, you know. But what happens is as you ex- begin to experience 
being the observer, you begin to see that. You actually, there's an old thing, there's a difference between a belief and a knowing. A belief is something you haven't experienced yet, but it seems to make sense. Like, um, you know, so, but there's always a certain amount of doubt that is baked into it because you haven't actually had a conscious experience of it. So it's kind of like, um, a, you know, riding a bike. If you've never ridden a bike, you know, you can say, yeah, you know, get on it, pedal it. The gyroscopic forces will keep it. You, you can, you know, you can do that. And the person gets on the way. There's all this trepidation because they're like, they have not experienced riding a bike. And so it doesn't matter how much they believe it. It's it, they still have to wrestle with the fact that it's not a conscious knowing. Once they ride around on the bike and they get it, now it's a knowing. And that's what happens with this. When you begin to move from, I'm telling you this, I'm telling you this works. I'm telling you this is going to happen, but you haven't experienced it. When you begin to experience this, then it becomes a knowing. And you might not be able to hold on to it. That's the skill, like um, initially, but you get enough of it that you realize this is real. And because it's real, I want more of it. I want more control of it. I want to be more in charge of it. I want to be able to call it at will. You know, like, so when I notice that my mind and I've told my subconscious that when that person walks in the room, I'm supposed to feel really upset. Like, um, well, that's just a behavioral habit. Like, you know, I have a choice. I can decide just as easily not to be upset when that person walks in the room and not surrender my my um, inner peace to that person just because they walked into the room. You know, I can I can do that. Like, um, well, the first thing you have to do is be able to not be in that drama. You have to be outside of it. And that's what thought awareness does. It gives you the privilege of choice. Once you have that, now you got to aim it somewhere. And that's, you know, that's something else that, you know, we get into. That's, I'm not a coach that works with people for years. I don't think this stuff is that complicated. Um, and I don't think it should take that long to get to a point where you can basically coach yourself. I think it's really understanding what the mechanics are. And I think what is helpful initially in the first, you know, I don't know, four or six sessions, whatever, is really just being able, having someone point out, how do you how do you aim this at this particular situation? I always start, I tell people, bring something you're struggling with, like uh, to the first session, and and we'll I'll show you how this works, you know, and uh, and but because our reactions to situations are so habitual, which is part of the problem. If you don't have someone outside of that, someone who's objective watching it and just kind of, you know, it's like the kid in the toy store, you know, they always want to run off and you got to got to grab them and pull it. No, look, remember what we talked about here? You know, da, 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 da. like, um, so you see how you're doing that right here? And they go, oh, yeah, geez. And I see that all the time. I'm looking at these people on the on the screen. And I'll go like, you see that? And they're like, yeah, I can't believe I missed that. Like, um, yeah, I am doing exactly what you just said. Like, um, okay, I got it. Like, you know, and they're taking notes. So like I said, it's a skill. Skill has all skills start at no skill <laughs> and they move along a line of mastery. And uh, you can interpret the experience and the process of mastery any way you want. You can interpret it as, I'm, I can't be happy with this until I'm good at it. Um, or you can say, um, I need to be, uh, or I love this. I love this. There's there's no limit to how good I can get. You have those options. Um, we've got about 30 seconds left. How can people get in touch with you? Uh, they can email me at uh, tom at tomsterner.com is, you know, is the best way to get in touch with me. And I do read my emails and I do respond to them. So yeah, tom at tomsterner.com, or they can they can also go to tomsterner.com and, and see what I'm about. This has been an amazing and informative conversation. Thank you so much for sharing this with us today. 
Oh, I loved it. Thank you so much, Chris, for having me on. I'm Chris Meek. We're out of time. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.